You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm actually on antibiotics, but let's not worry about that. Um, I hope all our listeners are well. Well, I hope they I hope they are too, and I'm sorry to hear that um, you are on antibiotics. Um, I do before we get into the uh, before we do get into uh, today's topics, uh, the Victorian election particularly, and the Labor's energy policy unveiled last week. I do want you to thank, do want to thank you for your heads up on the David Byrne concerts. You saw him on Tuesday on Tuesday, in Sydney on Tuesday, and we rushed up, we rushed up to the Gold Coast on Wednesday, and it was a fantastic thing to see, as you suggested it would be. But look. Let's get into politics. It's kind of moving very quickly now. The Victorian state election, um, obviously very good news for the renewables industry and a couple of sectors in particular. Uh, Yes, well, I think it would have been very disappointed if we hadn't uh, seen a continuation of Labor's policy. I was mildly amused to read in the Financial Review, the Institute of Public Affairs, that well-known left-leaning organisation, said there was really no difference between the Liberal and Labor policies in Victoria in regard to climate change. How did did they imagine that? (laughs) Well, you see, if you believe in climate change at all, uh, then you're automatically tarred with the same brush. But look, the the real point about this is, uh, when nuts and boils uh, boil it down, is that um, we're going to be targeting 50% renewables in Victoria now, which is another gigawatt, I think, of uh, over the previous 45% estimate. And uh, the subsidised, heavily subsidised solar and battery program will be going ahead. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it makes me think that, um, so four years more of labour, that takes us to um, late 2022. By then, um, most of that 40, first initial tranche of the 40% target will probably be in place and locked in and started construction. So really, you're coming back, to, you, you're kind of putting in motion the whole energy transition. And this, to me, was the hardest state of all, simply because of the um, because of the legacy brown coal generators and some of their grid constraints. So you think that by the time that all that's um, in four years' time, a lot of that will be resolved or in train of being resolved. And um, I just think that for that kind of locks it in um, for the whole of Australia, really, especially considering what, we, what we're going to see in New South Wales. Well, I think there are a couple of things to uh, take into account. Firstly, the Greens didn't do very well in Victoria for whatever reason, and there are probably a bunch of reasons. Um, and so I think there's less pressure, in a sense, on the Labor government, and we'll see the Cabinet announced the next day. So I certainly hope Lily D'Ambrosio continues in her role, because I think she's done a fantastic job. But what we've yet to prove is that um, uh, having more renewables can actually end up with lower prices. Victoria doesn't have lower prices at the moment. We need enough new renewables to force some gas and the hydro into, into background uh, situation and to get the dispatchable part of the market competing amongst itself so that the price actually does fall. Uh, so we, we still need to see that uh, variable out, wind and solar output lift a lot in Victoria before we're going to start seeing the benefits of it for consumers. 
Look, indeed. Um, and as you point out, the Greens didn't do too brilliantly in the Victorian election, and Labor does have a um, an outstanding major majority, at least in the lower house. So one hopes they don't take their foot off the accelerator and think, oh, we don't have to try so hard anymore. Um, look, one party try, still trying hard, obviously, is the uh, Labor, Labor Federal Opposition Party. Um, look, from the developments that we can see this week in federal parliament, and I'm speaking of the planned moving forward of the budget to April, that seems to clear the way for a May election. Uh, Labor stepped in last week with an outline of their energy policy. Bill Shorten was there at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance offices in Sydney. Mark Butler and Chris Bowen, the um, Treasurer spokesman, were also there. David, what did you... Well, we were first of all, we were hoping to get Mark Butler onto this podcast, but unfortunately he's been unwell this week, and we do hope to get him next week, so um, he's looking forward to that. But look, let's have a quick analysis of it now anyway. What were your impressions? Well, I, I thought it was great to see the announcement, but there's an awful lot of details missing and there are some question marks. So the CEFC the, um, <laughs> is going to get an extra 10 billion over five years uh, with a focus, special focus to go into energy efficiency and Arena's going to get uh, energy efficiency if Labor is elected as one of its mandates, which it doesn't have at the moment. So. But we don't really understand how Labor's going to achieve its 50% target. There's a quite a lot of missing details in that. We don't know if they'll be using, for instance, reverse auctions or if they'll have um, um, uh, 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 some other form of mechanism, a carbon price or some way of doing it. Uh, carbon price is a very scary term, I'm sure, to the Labor Party. Um, and then there's also a $5 billion energy security and modernization fund. Now, you know, it's quite, that's to build transmission infrastructure and gas transmission infrastructure. Uh, it's, it's actually a little difficult to understand uh, why we need that fund in particular. I mean, Transgrid would fall over themselves uh, to build transmission in New South Wales if they were just given uh, their heads up. But on the other hand, if it was used for something like the power in North Queensland uh, type transmission infrastructure, then there may be a big role for it. Yeah, that is one of the mysteries, um, trying to work out what's going to happen there. I mean, just, just as a bit of an overview, so there's $10 billion for Clean Energy Finance Corporation, as you said, there's $5 billion for the Energy Modernisation Fund, and that will be one of the things that we hope to ask Mark Butler about um, if he manages to join us next week. There was also the battery storage um, incentive. Now, that's um, kind of paying down to sort of uh, more popular politics and... Um, um, and giving a bit of a fillip to, to the battery storage industry. In the federal Labor's case, it was a $2,000 incentive, uh, $500 per kilowatt hour for up to four kilowatt hours of batteries. Now, most people are going to probably put in a bigger, bigger battery than that. So it's not really a 50% um, rebate. It's um, probably more like a third or one quarter, depending on the size of the battery. What do you make of that, David? Um, is, that, um, is that good policy or not? Well, Charles, I'll be interested in your take on it, but uh, my thoughts were that it's great to get an incentive for household batteries. I absolutely think that's the right thing to be doing, and I think that they can make about, all those battery schemes added up together can be about 500 megawatts of dispatchable power on my calculations, which is certainly useful at peak times. However, I do question, uh, you know, there's a household income limit of $180,000 applying not just federally, but also in some of these state schemes. 
and uh, batteries are quite expensive and I do question whether $2,000 actually will be enough to push enough people over the line to actually really get them taken up, particularly because being very cynical, uh, you expect battery makers to kind of price that incentive uh, in, into their calculations. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see how they actually manage this scheme because you've got in South Australia, you've got 40000 um, a, a scheme for up to $6,000 um, initially for, um, for the South Australian state scheme. Um, they expect the size of that incentive to come down pretty quickly. So they've allocated $100,000 for 40,000 homes. The initial subsidy will probably be $6,000 come down very, very quickly. Their reasoning is they will get capacity and uh, into the market and that will bring prices down. And um, certainly we've, we've seen uh, this week the Sonnen battery start production in the old General Motors factory in Elizabeth. You've got Alpha ESS from China and you've also got Iguana Technologies from Canada who appeared with LG Chem. They're also, so all three of them are settling up sort of battery manufacturing or assembly plants in Adelaide and that should bring down the prices. You've got a smaller scheme in Victoria and I kind of wish they had a bigger scheme, particularly with going with the size of their rooftop solar incentive, which is very, very generous. Um, and um, it was interesting to see New South Wales also tender for a, I think they described it as a 200 megawatt um, virtual power plant, uh, although that might not specifically be battery storage, although one wonders how they would get there otherwise. So it's going to be interesting to see the difference and, and how the federal scheme distinguishes itself from the state schemes and how they all pull together. But um, look, a worthy target, I think, certainly to get a, a million battery storage installations in um in that, That's right, Giles. It is a very worthy target. And it's exactly the right thing that the federal government should be doing. I think we can all agree that, uh, at least uh, I can agree with myself, uh, that uh, uh, getting batteries out of the household sector is where they'll be most valuable uh, to, the, to the whole of the grid. They'll get all those externalities like assisting with grid uh, strength and, and uh, helping networks avoid more augmentation that would otherwise be needed and uh, helping households are a major contributor to peak demand in the evening. So batteries at the household level will, will take the strain off peak generation around the place. So I'm, I'm a great fan of the scheme. Um, I can also understand, given say the home insulation sort of thing, starting small and, and working your way up once you become more confident about that you've got the foundations in place. I think that's sensible business strategy. So I. Uh, encourage Labor to keep prosecuting the battery uh, incentives around Australia. And it's not just Labor. In South Australia, it's got a Liberal government and they're going with the best incentive, as you said, $100 million and the biggest incentive per battery. And I think that's extremely appropriate for South Australia. And I, I expect the government there to be rewarded for, their, for it. And it's interesting to see how um, Victoria has also responded with their um, solar scheme. Um, that, of course, these schemes do attract cowboys. Um, they've actually set up a specific organisation called Solar Victoria, and they've been very proactive right from the get-go about dealing um, with um, some of the cowboys around the place. And there's an interesting um, episode on Solar Insiders, which we did an interview with the guys from Solar Victoria and just sort of pointing out some of the pitfalls that they had. So... Um, Hopefully the um, well, big assumptions here. One, we're going to have an election. Two, Labor's got to win it. And three, they've got to put their policies in. So um, if we do get that far, um, that's something to, 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 to look at. 
David, um, we're not going to have a long conversation today, but there's a couple of things I'd like to point out just before we do sign off. One is um, a bit more detail emerging out of RCR Tomlinson. Um, the Greenough River Solar Farm, the second extension in Western Australia, that's halted construction now. That's only had only just started. Um, that's being built for synergy and if solar people remember Greenough River back in 2012 was the very first large-scale solar farm in um, Australia and then was followed by the ACT ones and then the ARENA um, program as highlighted by Evor. But one of the things that's come out is basically a lot of these problems that emerged with RCR Thomason was not necessarily the budget, um, blown out budgets which we saw on Daydream and Hayman Island projects, but the missing out of milestone payments for a lot of their solar projects caused by the delays in connections. Now, there's a lot of reasons for delays in connections. Some of it's got to do with the new rules by EMO. Some of it's got to do with delays at the network level. Some of it apparently has got to do with a lack of consultants who can do the proper modeling that's now required for um, the, the, the grid connections. And then there's also the cowboy factor in that there are certainly some developers out there who have not been properly prepared and who thought they could do things which they found out they can't quite do at the speed and alacrity that they might have expected. But um, interesting that those connections are now having a rebound effect on people like RCR Thomason, which is which is quite a sizable organisation, I should point out, $2 billion in revenue. And as you pointed out in your column the other day, WinLab lost an equity partner for its Lakeland project for almost the same reasons, the uncertainty about the grid connection and possible marginal loss factors and things like that. So, you know, I've got no sympathy for RCR Tomlinson uh, or its shareholders. I think the shareholders are dumb as for putting money in without getting to the bottom of why uh, uh, the problems were actually occurring. But I've also got no sympathy whatsoever for RCR Tomlinson for taking on that connection risk and agreeing to make payments no matter what caused the problem. It's not RCR's Tomlinson's problem or reason why they, uh, the grid delays have occurred. It could well be AEMO's uh, problem, but it doesn't matter. RCR Tomlinson shouldn't have accepted a risk that they couldn't control or manage. So, and then you find out that, as you said in your column, that their cash flows are so tight that they can't even carry uh, a few progress payments on, on five uh, plants uh, for risks that they shouldn't have incurred in the first place. But the bottom line here is, uh, that the whole process of connecting all the eight gigawatts of wind and solar that's coming online is probably running about nine months, you know, I reckon, behind the original schedule. I expected a lot of it to be done as early as the March quarter of the year just, uh, uh, the, you know, ended and virtually nothing happened in the financial year FY18 and progress is still running at a relatively slow rate. So the trouble with forecasting what's going to happen is we're looking at it with a rear view mirror as usual. And what we have to be careful of is not to say that current conditions are what's going to be in place in 12 months time uh, or 18 months time as all these new plants gradually do come on board. Indeed, indeed. And I'd just like to point out that Infogen Energy in their um, annual general meeting a couple of weeks ago also pointed out that they've got problems with uh, Cherry Tree Wind Farm in Victoria, um, also over sort of grid connection uncertainty. So obviously an issue that's affecting the industry as a whole. Look, I just got one last thing, David, I just want to throw forward um, to next week. Um, the Smart Energy Council are having a conference in Sydney, a New South Wales based conference, uh, based conference, sorry. Um, they're their, their keynote speaker is going to be a former Prime Minister known as Malcolm Turnbull, who's going to be speaking. Um, I suspect I know what he's going to be sa saying, but should we care? 
No, we shouldn't care very much. He's not the Prime Minister. He's not in politics anymore. He's a private individual. He's a very smart individual with an extremely distinguished career. But I care about the, the you know, um, once you leave office, yeah, your history. I mean, all it's fine that we care if he's making trouble for someone or other. I mean, that's interesting politics, but it's got nothing to do with policy. Uh, the real question is whether the, uh, if there's any possibility of the Liberals changing their policy. We saw Julia Bishop calling for the NEG to be taken up again. Uh, the fact is, uh, as I said in my article, it's a matter of identity politics for the Liberals. Uh, they just can't do it. You can see they're totally rent by division, which I think is a shame. Uh, politics deserves to have uh, a proper debate on this issue. And the debate is not about uh, uh, decarbonisation or even the pace of it. The, the, the debate is really about the best way to actually achieve it. Is it a carbon price, which most economists would go with? Or is it reverse auctions because they can lower the cost of capital, but then they've got all the government risk, uh, uh, you know, moving too much into the federal government hands, which has never been involved in electricity to any great extent before. There's a lot of proper issues that we should be debating. Uh, we shouldn't be debating whether climate change exists or whether how much share the electricity sh uh, sector should really carry of that. Quite so. Look, and I'm just going to take this opportunity to um, thank our sponsors, Solar Energy and Watt Watches. Um, before I go, David, just one final, 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 final thing. Um, Hyundai Australia launches this week its Ionic range. It includes a full battery vehicle with a decent range, about 230 to 280 kilometres. The first one with a decent range that's come in under $50,000 Australian. We see overseas that GM has decided to close five factories and dedicate most of its future research funding on battery electric vehicles. Um, it sounds like the transition's happening and um, maybe it so, won't matter so much if Elon Musk does go to Mars in 2025. I expect range anxiety will still be a big uh, uh, feature. Um, that, that, that 230 kilometres in Australia, uh, you know, gets you from Sydney to Newcastle if you're uh, like where I am, but it won't get you back again. Um, uh, so it's shock, a great... Shock, shock horror, you're going to have to stay in Newcastle for a cup of coffee. That's a worry all by itself, isn't it? But, you know, um, um, I, I, I do think for a second car, a town car, it's fine, but I'm not sure it's going to have it. I like Hyundai cars, but I wonder whether it'll have enough to really set the market alight. Well, we'll have to wait and see. And um, obviously they're the first of um, a few electric vehicles priced around that point coming to the market over the next 12 months. And um, we actually have a bit of a look at that in more detail in the Driven podcast, which is our electric vehicle focused podcast. So tune into that if you wish. Um, once again, thank you for all the listeners. And um, David, thank you very much. And um, we'll be back again next week um, to talk more. Thank you for your participation. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.